Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to Heritage Voices, episode 50. Man, time flies. I'm Jessica Uquinto, and I'll be your host today. And today we're talking about anti-colonial digital archaeology in Canada and India. Before we begin, I'd like to honor and acknowledge that the lands I'm recording on today are part of the Nuch, or Ute People's Treaty Lands, the Dineta, and the Ancestral Puebloan Homeland. So today we have Dr. Neha Gupta on the show. Dr. Gupta is an assistant professor in anthropology at the University of British Columbia, Okanagan. Her research program addresses geospatial and digital methods in post-colonial and indigenous archaeology. Her research specialties are geovisualization and GIS, post-colonial and indigenous studies, and the archaeology of India and Canada. She is particularly interested in the digitization of archaeology and ownership of the past. Welcome to the show, Dr. Gupta. Thank you, Jessica. And I also want to acknowledge that UBC Okanagan is located on the unceded ancestral lands of the Salix people. And that's where I'm speaking from today. All right. So is it cold today? I mean, it's kind of snowy here. How are you guys looking up in British Columbia? The sun came out today. <laughs> it's It's been a very cloudy week. We get this low hanging cloud because we're in a valley. So it's it's been there pretty much for the last seven days, I feel. And the sun finally peaked out today. So I'm I'm delighted. Well, apparently you took our sun because <laughs> it's always sunny here and we actually have a cloudy day today. So. <laughs> so rude we switched we switched, we switched. Uh, yeah i'm sorry <laughs> well hopefully that means we'll get some snow here so it'll be worth it but all right so to officially start us off i'm really curious about what got you into this field what got you interested in this this type of work excellent questions i i, I often get asked this weirdly enough so the reason I actually ended up in archaeology is because I saw on the news, I think when I was in grade eight or something like that, it was on CBC News, the Canadian Broadcasting uh, Corporation. That's our one of the key stations that we have here. And basically, they were reporting on the demolition of the Babri Masjid. This is an event that took place in 1992. And I, I saw this on TV and I, you know, they kept talking about archaeology and the, the, the fact that there was a greater history to this, this place and the mosque was built on top of it, that basically Muslims had taken this land and, and built this mosque on top of a Hindu temple. And that's actually what got me interested in, in archaeology because they kept bringing this up and I was like, what, how, how does that work? How does archaeology tell you something like this? So that's actually how I ended up just becoming really interested in, in learning more about archaeology. And, you know, I, I took courses. I, I got a chance to go to the Royal Ontario Museum on school trips. 
And I just wanted to learn more and more about it. And then I ended up in university and here I am many, many, many years later. (laughs) So what was when you finally did get to study archaeology in university? What was that experience like for you? I was thrilled. I was it was exciting to learn about about archaeology, about the past and how archaeologists think about the past, you know, what they talk about when they when they say data. And I always sort of, again, you know, think about where I started with that one question of, you know, how does archaeology tell you what was there? And one of the the very first questions I remember asking is, well, how do you know where to dig? And mm-hmm. I know that this has come up for so many of, of, of my colleagues who are archaeologists. It's like, well, you, you don't actually necessarily know where to dig. It's often people who are living there who will tell you, go dig there. <laughs> There's something interesting there. There used to be something else there. So, and you don't realize that the importance of that until later in your career. <laughs> and even though I, I do so much of my work that has to do with geospatial technologies, with you know, detection and things like this, it's you don't realize just how important it is to have the perspectives of local people. And again, that's another key thing that just I I, I always seem to come back to hey, I kind of knew this. I just didn't realize how important it was until I, I got into the field myself. Could you talk about some of those experiences of, of realizing the importance? Yeah. Um, I think I had a, a major aha moment when I was doing my master's research. This was in Karnataka. and uh, This is a southern state uh, in India. And the, the archaeological question there was, was looking at the, the Neolithic in, in India. And as I was working there, we had, we had a couple of local people from the village who were helping us with the trench work and everything. And because I didn't actually speak the language, one of my colleagues, another student, he was working with me. And so, you know, at one point we just, we were, we just stopped for a break. And so the local villager, he was talking, he, he was directing the questions to me. And of course I was working through my, my colleague and he, he asked, well, you know, why, why are you doing this? And I said, well, we're, we're trying to find out about this and that, and, you know, agriculture and all of these really important questions that we have. And he kind of said, well, you know, I mean, you're, you're spending a lot of time and you, you're putting a lot of hard work into this. And it's just that this is, this is not a narrative that means anything to us. Right. And I, I think just as, as I'd heard that, I took it in and I don't think I realized its impact until later because as, again, it stayed with me. It stayed with me and, and I know that's where I got it. But that to me was my aha moment of everything that I had done up until that point was a narrative that what didn't clearly didn't matter to the people where I was excavating. And I had to ask, well, does it actually matter that much to me personally, which it didn't. And I was like, yeah, it's an interesting question, but you know, sure. In, in an academic sense. And that is the thing that has always stayed with me. It literally, as I say, it, it was a turning point in my own thinking and, and doing archeology. span It, it simply has taken a different road since then because of that just one interaction.
that I had with this villager who was who was working with us. How did you then, so you, you have this realization, like this isn't interesting to them and it's not necessarily even particularly interesting to me. Where did you go from there? Like, how did you, I guess, what did you realize was actually important to you? And how did that affect your, your direction moving forward? Oh, that's, wow, you really do dig deep. <laughs> Sorry. So I guess two things happened. I, I stopped doing archaeology. <laughs> that was the first thing. I stopped doing archaeology because I, for for various reasons, but really one of them was, well, why am I doing what I'm doing? Mm-hmm. You know, whether it's it's going for graduate school and spending a lot of time away from from family and, of course, going to these great places, which I wanted to do, but why am I actually doing it? And if it's not related directly to a a research question, for example, like the Neolithic that I presumably should be very, very interested in, it's not that I'm not interested in it, but is it really something that gets me up in the morning? No, it actually is, is probably not the thing that gets me up in the morning. So I stopped doing archaeology altogether. I actually stopped doing archaeology for about a year and a half, and I just did like a regular nine to five job. I had applied for grad school and for PhD, and I, I basically just postponed that. And then I still wasn't convinced that I wanted to do it. And then after about, I guess, in the, the second half of that, uh, that period, I kind of decided, okay, well, I'm ready now, but I don't really want to look at the Neolithic. Like that is not a thing that is necessarily going to drive my research. But what I do want to look at is why are we, why are we creating a narrative that really doesn't matter to the people who, who live in these places, who are actually there right now? This wasn't to say that you know, we should definitely have a narrative that they care about, this was simply recognizing that I'm putting a whole lot of energy and effort into a narrative that doesn't really belong to these people, to the local people, the, the local community. And I couldn't see myself continuing on that path. That was not an archaeology that was going to get me out of bed in the morning. So I said, okay, so why is this something that is continuing and how do I actually go about changing this when it comes to the to work in the Indian context? And so my my when I finally applied for the PhD, I'd, I'd chosen to go to McGill University in part to work with uh, Professor Bruce Trigger, who was based in the anthropology department there. And so that was sort of my, I'm not exactly sure how to do what I want to do yet, but here are the first steps towards doing it. Okay, so... And first of all, this is one of those moments where you can tell that I'm a cultural anthropologist and an archaeologist because I know I've heard of Bruce Trigger and that he is an important person in archaeology, but I don't know, like, in what context. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. He is a a very well-known Canadian archaeologist and theoretician of sorts, like theoretical archaeology. And so he, and extremely well-respected. So the decision sort of to, to go to train under him was was because he looked specifically at social and political aspects of archaeology. Like he's somebody who, who has written the book on the history of archaeological thought. So, you know, the 
in a sense, that was my sort of thinking. It's like, I need somebody who's going to let me have room to sort of investigate and, and examine this from a very different lens, that it can't be some an archaeology, uh, you know, a research program in archaeology that is just about looking at, say, a very specific archaeological period or particular, like the Neolithic. I needed something that was actually going to look at the social context of archaeology, and he was the right person for that. Okay, so I think my big question is, listening to you talk about all of this, you keep going back to the Neolithic, and... I feel bad. I keep saying Neolithic. Or I, it could be prehistory. Really, anything in prehistory. <laughs> I, I, no, I'm no. sorry. I shouldn't keep saying Neolithic. <laughs> no, no, no. I know what the Neolithic is. But the, my question is, you know, so, so basically it sounds like you were pretty clear that you wanted to work in India. But it sounds like also that it, you felt like in order to work in India, you had to be focused on the Neolithic. Very specific. Yeah, exactly. Is that because that's like the only thing that's considered quote unquote interesting? Yeah, exactly. No. So one of the very first questions that Bruce Trigger asked me was, why do you want to work one in India? Why do you want to work on the Neolithic? Because that was, you know, again, when you're applying to grad school, you have to kind of have an idea of what you're going to do. So the, the original sort of statement of intent and things that I'd written, ultimately they were they were very much related to my master's, which that's what it was on. Again, looking at this this prehistory and things, so I, I that's what I had proposed. So my very first meeting, going into his office and meeting with Bruce Trigger, was was precisely this that he asked me, well, what what's your interest in this? And I said, well, it's the one that gets funded. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not joking. I feel really silly saying. Uh, but, you know, the senior archaeologist, like renowned person, and I'm saying basically it's the one that gets funded. It's yeah. like the topic that I kind of really want to do is probably not going to get funded. So, yeah, and then we, we sort of just started unpacking some of the ideas that I'd had. And that's that's what let me, it gave me space to to investigate those those interests and issues that had come up during my field work and just in seeing the different different interactions between scholars and recognizing, of course, that I was working with, with scholars who had come from Britain. I mean, I was doing my master's in Britain, so that's not exactly a shock that I'd be working with British scholars, but really to start to untangle the, those, those colonial relationships and those, you know, again, a lot of the narratives and a lot of the the research research questions that were being asked, that if they're not the ones that local people are interested in, then who really is driving that research ag- agenda? Yeah. So basically, I mean, it sounds like from, from what I can gather from what you're saying that, you know, kind of this colonial British approach to archaeology in, in India is that it's only interesting if it's really old. Mm-hmm. And... Basically, that's not that's not what people today care about. I mean, I'm, I imagine they care about things that are or more related to their daily lives. Is that that accurate, or or what did you find out that they they were interested in and wanting to to see archaeology of? Well, I think it's exactly the first part that you said. That obviously there are particular interests in very specific questions, archaeological questions, themes mm-hmm. that seem to dominate different parts of the world. 
And that oftentimes you become locked into those those themes alone. There isn't a lot of room to maneuver or to to you know really be outside of them without leaving, in a sense, that that particular context. And and I, I certainly felt that because I wasn't interested in in looking at one specific archaeological period in India. I I absolutely did want to look at the practice of Indian archaeology. So in a sense, all Indian archaeology that has been done and the people who were doing it, because to me, that is where knowledge making makes sense. That's where knowledge is made. It's people make knowledge. It's maintained by people. So in that way, I really, you know, where I ended up that at the end of my doctoral dissertation is, it's kind of, yeah, I've had this very little, small little question of, Obviously, the things that I'm doing and that I've done in the field are not the ones that matter then. And I'm in that position to be thinking about, well, what does matter? And why is it that we're not looking at the things that matter to local people? And why are we then driving particular narratives, particular research questions? And, and really, who is driving that? What do, they, what do they have to gain out of this? But that's part of the story, right? That this is, this is what was made possible because of those initial questions of, so what is there? When, why are we doing this? Which I constantly go back to when I'm, even now, when I'm thinking about, you know, various things that I'm caught up in, it's like, is there a real, do I actually have anything that I can contribute here? Or is this kind of just somebody else's research agenda that I don't really necessarily belong in or can offer anything to support? Maybe not. So that tends to be what happens to me more often than not because of, mm-hmm. of these issues. I often think about this larger research agenda quite often. Right. Okay. This is fascinating. Unfortunately, we're already at our first break, so we're going to have to stop here for a moment, but we will be right back here in a minute. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code HEVO, H-E-V-O. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground. Cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. 
Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right, we're back. And okay, so we were talking about this a little bit on the break and a question that was, was coming to me a lot in the last segment was, you know, so you're a South Asian woman or at least of South Asian descent. I'm not sure how you identify specifically, but I'm curious, like you're working in India, you're working in Canada, what kind of response you get to, you know, working in India as somebody who came from India and whether that, first of all, I guess also like whether when you're in the field over there, whether people respond to you differently, but then also what I was thinking originally was specifically how people in the the anthropological, archaeological world respond to you when you're working in one setting versus the other, if mm-hmm. there's like a difference there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All, all, all of those things, I'm just going to let you go before I keep talking. Okay. Wow. Well, it's, a, it's an excellent question with so many different layers. All right. So I'll sort of <laughs> give some context on that. So yes, I, I absolutely identify myself as, as an Indian person of Indian descent. I was born in India. My parents moved when I was three. So all of my learning of, of things about India have, have come from outside India and obviously from my parents. You know, you could see that as a good thing or you could see that as a, as a bad thing. But, you know, in a very real way, the culture, I've been brought up in a different culture. And my ways of thinking about India have been shaped by the culture in which I grew up. So I think that part of me going to India and doing the research, my, my initial research there, I actually started digging there during my undergrad. I, I became really interested again, like I said, in, in archaeology, and I realized in the Canadian context and going to the University of Toronto at the time, there wasn't any, anyone who taught Indian archaeology who was, who was working in any of the countries of South Asia. So nobody in, in India, in, in Pakistan, in Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, none of, none of these places were, were actually, there, there wasn't anyone at the University of Toronto who was specialized in these areas at that time. There is now. So when I was in university there, I kind of just wanted to get experience. And so I'd gotten, gotten in touch with Greg Purcell, who was based at the University of Pennsylvania. And he ran an annual field school with Deccan College. This is one of the, the main universities in, in, in India that, that really, they, they do a lot of field research in, in really all, all across India, not just in Western India where they're based, but all across India. And so he had a field school that he ran there and I emailed him. I totally cold called type thing. I emailed him and I, and I said, you know, I'm, I'm at, I'm in Toronto and I'm really, really interested in working in Indian archaeology. And I'm wondering if you have any projects, any, anything that I could be involved in. And he was like, yeah, I'm running this field school this winter, come down, you know, basically just get to India and then we'll, we'll take care of the field school costs and things like this, if you can find your way there. So I was like, yeah, okay. I'll do that. <laughs> the neat thing, of course, being that, you know, I'm in like my second year of university. So this is like an incredible opportunity because again, nothing was offered at 
the institution that I was based in. And this was great because I was going to finally be able to learn something about Indian archaeology through doing archaeology as opposed to reading about it. So I, I was really fortunate in being able to go for that kind of opportunity. And, and you would have noticed that I probably, that I switched talking about, you know, the fact that obviously I, I learn everything about India outside of India. So it has meant kind of learning it through a particular lens. And, and for me, that was, it's kind of also been tearing it away because I also had then my own experience of going to India and seeing what people are like. And it's not just something that was in, in the book or the way that it had been described in a book or an article. And so it really gave me that firsthand experience and changed the way that I would look at India because I now had my own experience rather than relying on somebody else's. So that's the sort of way that I look at it. I'm, I'm very proud of my Indian heritage, but I, I also, as I say to my colleagues that, yeah, but I'm also Canadian because that is also, that is my reality. I, I have grown up in the Canadian context. I would not be able to say that, that I can speak confidently about, oh, this is what it's like to grow up in India through your childhood. I have zero way of saying this. So I, I can tell you what it's like growing up in Toronto. I can't talk about it the same way as, as I would, you know, if I had to say to somebody that was asking me about, well, you're Indian, so tell me what it's like growing up in India. I have no idea. <laughs> I, have no, I have no way of giving you any information on that. So I, I absolutely see myself as both. And I know that for, for a lot of young people who are similar to me, who are, who are immigrants, whether to Canada, to the United States, to the UK, there's always this, you know, well, how Indian are you and how Canadian are you? And I think a lot of those things mattered probably more when I was in university and less so since then, because you have to figure out your own way of looking at these things. That's part of your identity. How much and how you express it, the ways that you express it, that's going to be something that you decide for yourself. To me, it's just part of what you do as you as you grow up and you learn about your own perspectives and begin to appreciate other people's perspectives and their life histories. So those things are constantly there. I, I don't sort of code switch between one or the other. They're, they're there all the time. That's sort of how I, I view most of my work as well, that I, I don't see myself code switching. That's, that's the way I look at it, but clearly not the way that, going to the second part of your question, how people will, will perceive me and how they might see my work. So obviously, you know, being an Indian person and, and looking and studying India and trying to learn more about Indian archaeology, it's kind of like, oh, well, you know, then clearly your view is going to be very nationalistic. So through my going to, through my undergrad, but also more specifically through grad school. So I did my master's, uh, as I mentioned briefly, in the UK. And so looking again, at a very, in that context of, of grad studies of, oh, well, you're Indian, so you clearly you should work in India. Like that is clearly what you should be doing. And yet when you publish something or you, you, you talk about it, 
it's obviously seen as you're being nationalistic, that you are coming from a particular bias uh, that cannot be removed. And it's sort of like, well, again, I, so this, this, this social context has always been a really key part in the way that I've experienced academia as well as archaeology. And I guess ultimately they, they had to come together at some point. And, and I think a lot of that came through in my, in my doctoral work where it was like, yeah, well, then we, we actually do need to be thinking and talking about colonialism. We, I can't have it separate because I can't really even understand my own, my own positionality without thinking about that colonial context. So I think in a way it's, I've had to learn it. I've had to learn it because to me, it was just, I'm following my interest and that's fine. Except for a lot of people, it was that I'm being nationalistic, that I'm trying to learn about my own history. Even though, you know, the, the places in India that I was actually working is, is they're not where my family is originally from. So if you start really, you know, filtering it down, India is an enormous, enormous country in that way. It's, it's incredibly diverse, credible ethnic and linguistic diversity. And so it's hard to communicate that when somebody has already decided that's an Indian person, you're a brown person looking at India. And that's, that's for them, that's enough. It, for me, it's not. Uh, it, it, is, it, it really isn't because I, I know enough about India to know that that is not sufficient. I can certainly speak to certain aspects of it. I can speak to it in a more meta way, but not specifically to individual areas and certainly not. And I, I, I don't feel comfortable talking about, you know, parts of India that I have not really understood that I haven't even like, you know, visited. I have no personal experience. I'm not comfortable speaking about them because I, I actually don't know. And there is enough complexity and diversity in India that you would probably want to go and, and learn about those places. And to be fair, I would say that the same thing about Canada. I, uh, the, the fact is that through my, my graduate career, as well as postdocs, I, I've gotten a chance to travel to different parts of, of Canada. And, you know, before I went there, I was like, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's the same country, it's fine. But when you actually go and live in a different part of, of this continent, you actually then learn, this is how different it is. <laughs> this is not the same place as, as Toronto. This is not the same place as the neighborhood that I grew up in. So I would say that if you're, if you're open to seeing just how different the world is, then yeah, then you would see it. Otherwise you would just sort of have this big sort of homogenous view that you are Indian and therefore you should work in India and even if we are ultimately just going to see you as being biased and nationalistic, which incidentally, one of the reviewers, one of the first articles that I published uh, that I submitted for review after my PhD, I, I, I actually, that is what one of the reviewers said that, oh, you're, you're clearly have a very nationalistic view. Even if I was actually challenging those very views, I was looking at you know, how colonial narratives about India were challenged in part by Hindu nationalism, but that that created also other sorts of, of issues in Indian society. So it was sort of like, okay, well, 
you can you can certainly see it that way. I'm, I didn't change very much in that article, I don't think. But clearly, there are reviewers who are gatekeepers and will always see it that way. I can't change that. Unless, of course, you know, I become a reviewer myself. <laughs> um, so <laughs> the, the, the flip side of that is that you, you also get into that, like I said, the stream that because now you are identified as a scholar who works in India, that is the only thing that you can talk about. So through my GAT studies, when I came back and I started working at McGill, this was again the same case. It's like, well, I think that if I'm looking at colonialism, surely there's a connection to the Canadian context as well. But no, no, just just stick to India. You know, that's, that's, that I am not joking. <laughs> this this like actual words. Uh, stick stick to yeah. stick to India. This is this is where you you belong. And so I was like, yeah, that I feel like that's that's another form of colonialism and. Then really to be thinking about what those colonial practices are in the academy. That's where it started. I didn't. I don't think I delved that deeply into it in in my doctoral work, but I knew that that was going to be the next thing that I did because that question had come up and it bothered me so intensely. And and the fact that you know I live in Canada, and so I if I'm not thinking about how those practices, how I I might be reinforcing those practices well that's a problem to me i mean to me it was just the next logical thing to be doing i would have loved to have done that uh, as part of my doctoral work but i understood the context in which all of this was taking place and so i said okay well you know we'll focus on india and that will be it and all of my work that i've done basically since my since i finished my phd has has really been about what does it mean for me to be working in Canada, having been trained in the Canadian Academy, what have my experiences been like, and you know how how is it that I'm not talking about colonialism the same way? Why am I not allowed to? And the great thing after your PhD is that hey, go for it. Especially if you're unemployed, you can talk about whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> so so I have been talking, and that for me it is extremely important that I talk about what I've in part learned from my from my work in india but to be able to see that colonialism is is just as important as as you know uh, evolution for for a lot of scholars because guess what if you're going to talk about things that are universal this is actually a thing that is universal yeah yeah it's something that has absolutely impacted every place on the planet everyone in every possible way so there you go. That's that's sort of my thinking on it. And <laughs> I think it's and that that always comes up. This this is something that has come up. And I, every so often I'll have a scholar who'll say and because I work with with First Nations in Canada, often, sometimes it will come up. The scholars will say, hey, you know, you should have just stuck to India. And I'll just be like, OK, cool. That sounds good. <laughs> you can go your way. I, we don't have to work together kind of thing. But that's okay. I can take that. Yeah. Well, and of course, I, I love the flip side of that as if like a person in the UK studying Indian archaeology is somehow free of bias or somebody in Canada. You know what I mean? Like, Well, exactly. Uh, exactly. Somehow yeah. the bias that you have as, yeah, exactly. Belonging to that particular, of being Indian, of 
Indian descent or uh, Indian origin just makes you so essentially biased that it cannot be understood and cannot be, you can't really get away from any of this. Instead of just making, you know, I make it explicit. I, I'm not particularly hiding the fact that I'm an Indian woman. This is not a, it's not really something I can hide. <laughs> so, and I don't try to hide it. So I, I take it and I take it the way it is. And it, it's, it's, you know, the reviewers are always going to be there. There's always going to be a reviewer number two, which is code basically yeah. for, you know, the reviewer who is, is, who has nothing constructive to add to your review, to the comments and, and is generally disparaging of everything that you have written. So some you you're we're gonna have reviewer number two. That's why we named them the reviewer number two. <laughs> so uh, you accept it. Well, I mean, but at some point, editors need to do a better job of that. Like that's really not okay either. You know what I mean? Like when certain groups of people, you know, I mean, in different circumstances, it could be women, it could be, you know, like indigenous people, it could be whoever. If they're receiving like. Like emotionally violent? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's not yeah. yeah, exactly. But you know what I mean? Like, like at some point, somebody needs to be like checking these before they get sent out. And I think that editors do that. We don't often know what happens. In many cases, the editors will be like, no, either, either they might just say, well, you know, it's hard enough getting someone to do a review. So I'm just going to let it pass. Or maybe I'm mm -hmm. going to take out parts of it. That can also happen. There's also a model where it's open review, where you can you can actually see who reviewed your work. So actually, I, I do that quite often. Like if I've got the option, I will say the person can the author can go ahead and contact me, and I'm happy to build some more, you know, give additional insights into what I was trying to get at, or if it's not clear, whatever else, they can contact me basically. And it really just depends on the journal. At that point, it's not even the editor, it's often the journal itself, it's policies about, you know, blind review and things like this. So there are other models that are potentially less destructive, less damaging to especially young junior scholars coming up in the field. So, but they're not necessarily the prestige journals. So that's the other, other side of it as well, that uh, we're also encouraged to publish in prestige journals, which you can hide Everyone can hide behind anonymity. I mean, we know that. We know that from the internet. This is give you an open space where you can discuss yeah. really difficult topics, or it can also be the place where you basically harass and, and traumatize people. So yeah, it depends on what you decide to do with that shield. Yeah. And I think that's the case with reviewers as well. So they can, they can hide behind it. Ultimately, it does more damage to the to the discipline, in my in my thinking, but. I, I think there, there are many different kinds of reviewers out there. And you're right, the, there's, there really should be more editorial sort of discretion on that. I, I imagine that there is, and it's, it's tough when you see certain kinds of reviews uh, being sent to, to authors or certain books being published that really should never have seen the light of day. Yeah, so. yeah. All right, well, we're already at our second break point. <laughs> did not just fly by. It really did. Right? Yeah. I always say that, but then it's like, no, it really does. <laughs> but all right. So we will be back here in a moment. 
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Okay, we are back. And what I want to start with is you were just talking about working in Canada and working in India. And you were talking a little bit about you know, wanting to work in both because there are some really interesting and important parallels there, namely colonialism. And so I'm curious about how you use digital methods in both those places, since that's really kind of a main focus in your work is is digital and spatial methods. So could you talk about how you use those methods and, and maybe how you use different ones in the, the two different places? Yeah, that's a great question. See, you just have wonderful layered questions. <laughs> the editors would say I have, I ask too many questions in one question. <laughs> that's okay. We're going to unpack it. Yeah. So obviously to me, there, there are linkages in part because it relates so directly to ownership of, of archaeology, ownership of the past. So, you know, thinking about, so much of my 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 research has has really focused on 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 narratives like who narrative is it who is writing that narrative and it stems also from well where where are those things that we call data what what are the data that we're referring to and one of the real issues that that I've or I'm beginning to address in Canadian context is you know the the fact that a lot of the the archaeological data that are collected are not with First Nations. That is not where that information is kept. They are not the ones who who get those reports. They're not the ones that have access to those spatial databases, for example. And oftentimes it's it's cultural resource management companies that are really collecting a lot of that information. So it those issues for me are, you know, to me, you can't think about archaeology without thinking about data and narratives. So I'll, I'll start with the Indian context and I'll come back to the Canadian context. So for, for India, in India, there is an actual institution that it's a national institution, the Archaeological Survey of India. This is the department that manages archaeology, heritage management for all parts of India. There are also state departments of archaeology. There isn't really a strong CRM type culture, like they don't really have these private companies that get contracts and things like this. It's primarily the State Department that handles those or the Archaeological Survey of India. So most of the archaeology that's carried out is going to be, you know, either the the Archaeological Survey of India that's going to do it, or it will be at the state level 
And that's often with universities and in, you know, different institutes of higher education. So it's, what that means is, you know, where those data are actually going to end up. So they might end up in these where you storehouses that the university professors have, or it might end up really in the state department's archives and, and storehouses, or it's going to end up in this much larger physical repository depository that the, the federal, this, this central government runs. So it becomes really important to think about where things end up once archaeologists have excavated them. Now, I'm not even including right now, you know, things like field schools where you often will have an international collaboration. One of the things that I'm, I'm looking at a little bit more closely is the fact that this particular model where you have a very strong sort of central department that is focused on archaeology and heritage management, what does that mean for the kind of funding then that, that is actually available, public money that's available to do this work? So if I compare it to the Canadian context, you know, most of the archaeology is done by, by CRM. Universities probably are, are a, a fraction of the work that CRM actually does, right? So it's it's very it's a very different model than what you have in India, where it is much more government run. So what those those are the sorts of things that I think about. It's like, what does that mean if you are trying you are at a university and you're trying to train your students and run field schools? How much money is going to be available if you actually have a department that is focused on this, that is literally its reason to exist? How much money do you actually then leave for other public institutions for training and, and, you know, which is really one of the things that you expect will happen at universities and these other institutions. So there is a funding aspect to it, which is really interesting to me because again, where things end up gives you a certain control over them. And you are then able to really make your narrative based on what you have. They certainly aren't staying at the local community level. That's often something that has to be argued for. Like you have to actually say that you want a local museum and they have to be justified. And even then, it's the archaeological survey that can that can really veto those sorts of decisions if it has interests in that location or in the in the material that has been recovered. So that's one of the reasons why I also wanted to, uh, and map Indian archaeology really comes from, from this idea of trying to understand narrative and the scholars themselves, you know, where, which institutions did they come from? Why were they carrying out work in those particular areas? What were they, what were their research questions? You know, what sort of methods were they using and how much training were they sort of providing for the next generation of, of archaeologists? So it's like a little, for me, it's, it's, it's a life history of, of all of Indian archaeology. So MENA, uh, MAP Indian Archaeology, is, is, this is the project that I made during Michigan State University's Institute for Digital Archaeology and Method. And I launched it really as a proof of concept that we could actually do this as a web-based platform that could really get us thinking about these questions and, you know, open that space. One, to, to actually look at the fact that there's a real oversight when it comes to developing digital methods 
and technologies that are appropriate for archaeology. One of which is, is web-based visualization, I think. I think it's a really neat thing. We should spend more effort in doing this, not just because it's my research interest, but it's a really good way of engaging in, in public discussions and a really neat way of, of having that sort of storytelling component. So that's one part of it. The other part of it is, is ultimately promoting those kinds of digital methods, but really for societies in the global south, in post-colonial societies, where there has been a, a long, unfortunate practice where scholars will go in, they will collect the data, and then they will take it back to their institutions, international institutions, usually in, in you know, Canada, United States, the UK, other European universities, for example. And that's where that those data are going to be, in a sense, housed. And I think that those are the sorts of things that I'm trying to get at to say, I, it's, a lot of that material may not be there, but a lot of material is in India. And how do we then shift that focus? How do we recenter it to the stuff that is still in India and that local scholars can then speak about with authority? So, you know, Mina in a way is really to encourage that sort of of discussion of why aren't we thinking about this in a digital sense as well? Because the, the practices that we've had with physical material are, are very much going to be reinforced by the digital. That's what we're seeing. That's what we've seen in the last 20 years. This, it's not something that challenges the bad practices that we've had. It's actually reinforcing them. Because guess what? The digital methods and practice and anything that's being developed is also being develop at the same, you know, with the same Eurocentric perspectives in those same institutions. So why, why are we doing this? Why are we repeating the same practices? And so I, I really le kind of thought about Mina as, as being a place where I could just open it, uh, launch it and, and use it in that way to really have people think about, you know, where how, who's doing that work and how that might have changed through time so initially i've only done a very small map sort of analysis of between 19 the, the early 1950s and 1960s in part because i also see that you know this is actually a huge undertaking that data themselves actually come from a really key source as i said there's a central department in india that that deals with archaeology and heritage management, well, they come up with this annual publication, Indian Archaeology, a review. And so it's every 12 months, basically all the field collection that has taken place, scholars and all of these different departments will submit all of their reports. And it's going to be compiled into this fairly large report. They usually just end up having summaries of all of the field sites uh, what was recovered, you know, who was doing the work and things like that. But it is actually the only report that you can get access to for, for a lot of the sites. And, and particularly when it comes uh, to, you know, these early, early records dating from the 1950s. It's a great source. It hasn't always been looked at very critically. It's kind of been seen as, oh, well, you know, they reported this site. Okay, well, that's, that's the only information. 
there, there, with any document, any historical document that you look at, you need to consider how it was made and how it was put together. And this is a report that you know all of that information is coming from different places. It is being edited. There is some editor who has done something. So in my mind, that opens a lot of really interesting questions as well, which I want to continue to investigate, of course. And these, these mapping tools are, are really a way to encourage that sort of conversation. So that's, that's the story with, with Mina, with, with the idea of the map. Uh, and I just wanted to throw in there that we'll have links in the show notes to the map Indian archaeology project, like the map itself. And then also you can click to, to more information at the top, but then also there's blog associated with the project map Indian archaeology. And we'll have both of those in the show notes. So, so people can explore all of that further. Yes. Yes. Awesome. Thank you. So to, to go back to your original question then, so that's the map India project and bringing the, the, the digital sort of the digital methods to the Canadian context, then it's is again, very much rooted in this idea of ownership. Data governance is, is a huge part of like the work that I do with digital methods. And here I've also, you know, tried to engage very directly with, with First Nations, not so much just have the, the data available to you. I mean, you can always request it. You can always say to, to the province. So in Canada, of course, there's no federal oversight over archaeology, not really anyway. It's much more at the provincial level. So all of the legislation that takes place is, is, is going to vary by province. And having worked in, in at least three provinces now, I can tell you that there are, there are significant differences in the way that, that each province or each provincial agency deals with and has relationships with First Nations in, in those territories. So to me, those issues, the, the thing that, the run, that runs through all of them is this idea of, of data governance, which pretty much covers not just what you would traditionally think of as, as managing data. This is, this is very much about any kind of strategy that you have even for preservation, for curation accessibility, legal and policy issues. In fact, you are, you are deciding how you are going to use those data. And First, First Nations have priorities when it comes to their heritage. So to me, that conversation about doing any kind of digital work, bringing this into a digital environment has to be we first have to talk about what that digital governance looks like, that data governance looks like. Because if we are simply repeating the same practices as before, it would just mean, okay, well, you know, I can get the data from the province when I need it and then sort of decide on what I need to do. Well, that's, that's actually not good enough and not particularly what you want to see in, in, in a context where, you know, provinces at least British Columbia has already recognized the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, which also says that, you know, it's First Nations, the Indigenous people have a right to their heritage, which includes archaeological heritage. And bringing that to bear on, on digital information is something that needs to be done. You have to actually put effort into it. It's not obvious. 
it's not obvious in terms of how you would do it. It's also not obvious whether we have the capacity, both at the university level, but also in, in First Nations communities to do this. And we don't necessarily have the right tools. So, for example, one of the things that, that is, is how do you actually incorporate cultural protocol? This isn't just about accessibility. It comes also to privacy and ultimately use. So privacy about who, who is allowed to know about this sacred knowledge, for example. Who is allowed to use this sacred knowledge and how are you allowed to use it? Traditional databases don't have this. Like this is, this is not a thing that we build into our traditional digital databases. So these are important aspects of everyday practice that need to be, that need to be part of that digital infrastructure in a sense. And so my work there has, has really now focused on trying to address each one of these. And they're kind of big issues in of themselves because we're in a situation, both when it comes to our, our own institutional capacities of, well, do we have, are we actually training the next generation of archeologists to do this kind of digital work? I'm, I'm gonna say most people will say no. They, we aren't necessarily, like as, as, as much as I, I've been trained in, in GIS, and it's certainly been a key part of, of doing archaeology. And since I'd say at least the 1980s, we've had databases before, you know, dating back to like the 1950s and 60s. But does that easily translate into being able to, if we want to build a database that or a, a some sort of a digital platform, a web-based visualization, that can actually show us this cultural protocol. Is, that, is there a direct link there? Well, in terms of training, no, there isn't. There are in fact very few places where you can get training like that. And we often are relying much more on going outside of, of archeology, span of anthropology, and you know, talking with colleagues in, in computer science, in, in geography, and really trying to, to build something that is interdisciplinary, which I know sounds like a really awesome word and, and institutions love using it, but doing the thing actually requires twice as many resources and a lot more time <laughs> and patience. The results are awesome, but it's that initial investment that people don't always understand. And, you know, just me going to a computer science expert and saying, hey, I need this done. Can you do it for me? And doing that time and time and again is not actually helping to train archaeologists to do it. That's just farming out your work. And that's a terrible model. It's just a terrible model for us to follow. So I think that's that's sort of my my focus. I, this is this is ongoing work. I don't expect that it's going to be addressed you know, in a year's time, this is, this is, it's going to take a lot of, lot, lot of effort and explicit effort to, to actually build the kind of things that we need in archaeology and to actually have archaeology students who can, who can speak with confidence about the, the digital work that they're doing, the platforms that they might be using. So I, uh, you know, again, this is part of building the entire, the foundation so that 
it's something that First Nations can see themselves being trained in this right alongside those archaeology students. It, it does not need to be one or the other. It really does actually need to be both because they're going to be dealing with data governance issues, no matter no matter what kind of data we're we're looking at. So that's that's sort of how I see digital digital tools and digital methods really having a significant impact for archaeologists as as we move forward. Yeah, and you have really interesting. So everyone should go to your website. It'll be also included in the show note. I think there's some really interesting different examples of some different types of projects that use different technologies that you've done with all of these ethics in mind. And you have some different discussions on using tools in the right way and things like that. Some particularly interesting ones that I would have loved to have had time to discuss today are the the Park Safari Burial Detection, Digital Archaeology Textbook, some different projects like that. So everyone go check out her website in addition to the map, Indian Archaeology map and website and blog. So those will all be in the show notes. And I, I wish that we could have gone more in depth on all of the things, but I'm so glad that you were here and we got to talk about all of the, the great things that we did. And yeah, just wanted to say thank you. Oh, thank you. That was lovely. All right. Well, like I said, there's, there's plenty more to talk about, so maybe another day, but yeah, thanks again. Thanks for listening to the Heritage Voices podcast. You can find show notes at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash heritagevoices. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or the Google Play Music Store. Also, please share with your friends or write us a review. Sharing and reviewing helps more people find the show and gets the perspectives of Heritage Voices' amazing guests out there into the world. Don't we just need more of that in anthropology and land management? If you have any more questions, comments, or show suggestions, please reach out to me at Jessica at at livingheritageanthropology.org. If you'd like to volunteer to be on the show as a guest or even a co-host, reach out to me as well, Jessica at livingheritageanthropology.org. You can also follow more of what I'm doing on Facebook at Living Heritage Anthropology and the nonprofit Living Heritage Research Council or on Twitter at Living Heritage A. As always, huge thank you to Lyle Belenqua and Jason Nez for their collaboration on our incredible logo. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. And, and it was, was edited, edited by, by Rachel Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US dollars a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it every time. 
And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.